This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. I think that Mario is more pervasive. I'm thinking about, you know, whatever expressions one, one associates with your first time or your first love. There's just something about, about your first love. And, you know, you can fall in love with other people throughout the course of your life. But that first one is always going to be special in a unique way, and it's going to be even more special if that's the one you marry or if that's the one that keeps coming up like Mario does every few years. And I think that's a really big part of it. You know, timing, as with love, as with a lot of things, is a really big deal. And Mario was really the face of Nintendo when they resurrected the video game market. You know, Super Mario Brothers, which came out in 1985, not only did it help revive the industry and help put Nintendo on the map, but it's just a fantastic game, I think, that everything has been created in the past 30 years as a result, but it really just changed the way that video games were played with the platforming game. And, and I think that the timing counts for a lot. You know, we were both kids, we were both looking for something to, to get lost in, and Mario was the perfect example of what video games could be. It kind of elevated them to this level of art, it elevated them to this level of almost being like playable cartoons. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Pagan Ampike Pagan. Now, if you were the child of indulgent parents in the early 90s, the struggle, the war, was real. Sega or Nintendo, Sonic or Mario, Game Gear or Game Boy. Before iOS or Android, before Apple and Samsung, it was Sega and Nintendo that were fighting for hearts and minds. And that guy you just heard was Blake Harris. He is the author of a book that chronicled this unlikely history. It's called Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo and the Battle that Defined a Generation. Uh, sure, this is Blake Harris. I wrote a book called Council Wars. I really like teddy bears, and I am at home right now in New York City. So right off the bat, Blake, were you a Sega guy or a Nintendo guy? <laughs> the big question. Um, well, you know, I was a Sega guy, but I wanted to be a Nintendo guy, and that's part of what inspired me to write the book, because it was such a big deal which side you were on. It was kind of like political parties for kids. And once you were on that side, everything about that side was correct and everything about the other side was wrong and there would be fights on the schoolyard. So um, I, I'm proud to say I was a Sega guy during this era. So these days, things are so different. It almost doesn't matter which console you buy. There doesn't seem to be the same kind of debate or animosity. No DC versus Marvel, Apple versus Google. Uh, talk to me about that period you cover in the book, because that console wars time period seems like such a unique point in not just video game history, but just corporate history. It really was a unique time. Uh, I mean, specifically with video games, it was the Wild West era. And what I mean by that is just that how business was done. There weren't so many rules. There was a lot of backroom dealing. And... And it really wasn't an industry, per se. You know, by the end of the book, by the end of the story, by 1995 and 96, they established a trade association, uh, annual trade show, V3, the ratings board. So it really did kind of grow up during this era. But at the beginning of the story, you know, Nintendo was doing a lot of things that was that were potentially illegal. And later, the U.S. government actually <laughs> took them to court for that. And Sega was doing other things that were challenging Nintendo that you probably couldn't get away with nowadays. And so, you know, a lot of that has changed because of how the video game industry has evolved. But also, to your larger point, a lot of that has changed just because of a couple of things nowadays. Back then, 
it wasn't such a globalized world. There was no internet. So what was happening in Japan and what was happening in Australia and what was happening in the U.S., nobody really, the people in one region didn't know what was happening in the other. And so it led to very segmented businesses. But the other big thing is just the cost and the barrier to entry to be in the video game industry nowadays. Back then, you could make a game for a million dollars, and it could be a great game. Nowadays, it costs tens or even 30, 40, 50 million dollars. And so when games cost that much, you can't really play games with being an exclusive license to one company and, and upsetting the other unless it really is strategically best for you. You can't really take the same risk that you could. And it's almost not surprising that the two big companies in the video game industry nowadays, the two hardware makers are Sony and Microsoft, which if you think about it, are not video game companies historically. You know, Sony's a consumer electronics company and Microsoft is a computer company. And both do make great games and, and great consoles, but they don't have a pedigree of a video game company like Sega or Nintendo or even Capcom or Konami. You know, they're relatively new to the business, and that's because the business is very, very costly, and those are the companies that can afford it. You know, we didn't have the internet, and yet somehow you all the way in New York and me all the way in Malaysia figured out that you could just blow into the cartridge, plug it back in, and it would work again. <laughs> Well, I think there's just some things in the collective unconscious that, uh, you know, are that important that we all know about. Yeah, and, and the funny thing is I asked, you know, I interviewed over 200 people from Sega and Nintendo during the book, and I asked several of them about the belong on the cartridge, and, and most of them say it's a myth, and I, it is not a myth. I mean, that really works. So uh, I think it was just one of those times, one of those rare times where kids know something that adults don't know, and it's kind of inexplicable how we could do it. I swear upon everything I hold holy that that is not a myth. It worked. I, I totally agree. I would uh, swear on my life that it worked. And it did. I mean, obviously it did because we have enough anecdotal evidence. And, and it has to have because I'm sure that it just readjusted some things in there. Um, but it's really funny that that was how things worked back then. It was a cartridge-based video game system. And the funny thing with that was like Nintendo... Part of what Nintendo did that angered people was that when you agreed to make a game for them, you also agreed to buy their cartridges and let them be the manufacturer. And so that gave Nintendo even more leverage and they could, you know, claim that there were shortages with these chips and they really just had all this control. So for me, this was a battle that was being played out both at the highest levels of corporate America and in the backyards of my suburb in Damansara Heights in Kuala Lumpur, my friends and I were essentially the proxies of this corporate conflict. And did you guys feel the same way? Absolutely. I, I definitely felt like I was a soldier on the front lines of this battle. And I think that that was something that Sega was very conscious of. You know, Nintendo, to, to oversimplify things, their mentality was just to make great games. And they didn't have some heavy-handed business tactics, but they were all about making great games and supporting us kids in playing those games, whether it was Nintendo Power or whether it was the Game Council's hotline. But Sega, sort of being the underdog and realizing that they needed to kind of create a narrative behind their, their brand, because it wasn't very well known, was to kind of create this war and to kind of make and to pit people against one another. And it was very clever on their part. Because it, it did inspire brand loyalty, some of which still exists today, you know, based on what side you were on. And to really create this larger narrative about video games. And I think that that is something that's, that's lacking today. You know, whether you like the Yankees or, or the Red Sox or if you hate both teams, I think it always is helpful to have stories, to have drama. And I think that, that just is another way to entice people 
to care about the products and then you'll find out what you like and what you don't like. But it's just a good just a good way to draw people in like it did when we were kids. You know, I think that my personal experience was, was similar to a lot of others in that I had a, an 8-bit Nintendo Entertainment System, like one in three households in America, and I desperately wanted a Super Nintendo, but my parents said no. And I think that part of the reason they said no was because Nintendo was a Japanese company. Explicitly, it was because it wasn't exactly compatible, so the, the old NES games didn't work on the Super Nintendo. But I do think that there was a lot of distaste and dislike for Nintendo, partly because they were a Japanese company at a time when the Japanese were buying up a lot of American corporations that people weren't so happy about. And also just because Nintendo had a very cold demeanor with their sort of bedside manner. So I do think that was part of it to some degree. Though the funny thing is that Sega is also a Japanese company. I don't think, or actually I would say, I think that Sega went out of their way not to be perceived as a Japanese company. But at the end of the day, they really both were Japanese companies. So it was kind of ironic that Nintendo was getting a little bit of that blowback and Sega was kind of the, the, the winner in that battle, despite them both having the same country of origin. Yeah, because the way Sega America branded itself was, even with what they did with Sonic the Hedgehog, this rebel who stands for kind of freedom against oppression, it was very American values. Absolutely, and that's what's so interesting about the story. You know, going into writing a a 500-page book about the battle between Sega and Nintendo, you'd expect that the most interesting battle would be between Sega and Nintendo. But as I went further down the rabbit hole, I found that the much more interesting battle was between Sega of America and Sega of Japan. And that's ultimately part of what doomed the company, because you had over here in America, and it sounds like over there, you know, you have these battles between Sega and Nintendo. But in Japan, the home of the parent company, you didn't really have that battle, because Nintendo always had 80% or more of the market. It really wasn't too much of a, of a dent that Sega was making. So... There's a strange dynamic where the parent company that's making a lot of the games, that's creating a lot of these characters, is not very successful. And in America, they're much more successful. And part of the reason was they were really trying to capitalize on the American market with sports games and licensed titles like movie tie-ins. And also because they were taking the Japanese games and, and really localizing them for a global audience, with Sonic being a great example. Sega and Nintendo realized back then what so many fail to realize even now, that the way to market share was through hearts and minds and not through technology, but rather through cultural dominance. I'm 32 years old, so I was a, a kid at the time of all this, and I had no idea of the context and the history all around it. So when I was happily playing my Mario Brothers and my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I didn't realize that there was a video game crash in 1983 and Nintendo had resurrected the market and that part of the reason that they had those heavy-handed tactics was to chase off the ghost of Atari and also that a lot of their philosophy was based on what had happened before them. They did not want to get caught up in, in uh, bits and bytes and technology. They wanted to just deliver great gaming experiences because I felt that's what the previous generation had failed to do, and that's what cr- caused this crash. So, you know, you sort of see that tender, love, and care in every product they produced back then, and still to this day, it's the same thing. You know, I, I've been, what, 25, 30 years now, and I've never bought a Nintendo product that wasn't a really fun experience, and I think that's very important. Thank you so much for having me on, you know. This is my first book, and as a first-time author, it means so much to think that someone all the way in Kuala Lumpur would, would find my book and would appreciate it the same way I do. And ultimately, I think it's the best book ever, but I think that it's mostly the best book ever 
because it's just an incredible story. I can't believe that nobody didn't, I can't believe it wasn't written before me. And my job to writing it was just not to mess it up because it is just a great story that, that defines our generation. And it's just a universal tale of, it, of an underdog story. And, and also, you know, it's this David and Goliath story. But halfway through the book, you realize that Goliath doesn't wake up every day to smash David's toys. He's actually, he was David five years earlier. And it's just two companies with very different philosophies on what video games should be. So there was a time when I, well, I'd like to think that I, as a consumer, played a role in defining either brand, Nintendo, Sega, Sony, Microsoft. I'm not sure that's entirely accurate. I think I might be being duped. I think I might be the patsy in this. What do you think? Well, in what way do you feel like a patsy? In the sense, it goes back to that idea of me being a proxy, that somehow... Whatever cultural capital I may have, whether it's just among my group of friends or a wider community, that I'm somehow being used to peddle this product. I don't know. I don't think that you're passing it because I think that you did ultimately have the decision to make on your own. And so much of video games and so much of these products that we that people care about a lot, where you care about other people's opinions, you know, it's that word of mouth thing, and you ultimately had the decision. I think that the companies were trying to speak to you, especially those with heavier marketing campaigns. I don't think you were a patsy. I think that you were uh, a proselytizer in this, and you kind of got to choose which which side to support, and that actually did make a difference. Let me tell you, I'm having these same issues with Marvel in DC again. I'm 35 years old. It's all happening again with the films. I'm having it with iOS and Android. Well, that's the beauty of the story, is that Kind of throughout the writing of the book, there's those these devil's advocate thoughts in your head and my head that are like, you know, why does this matter? This was 20 years ago. And I always wanted to try to answer that question. And it really is just a universal story. It, it, it does go on like you say now. I mean, the Marvel DC thing has been going on for years, sometimes more, <laughs> more of a big deal than at other times, depending upon the comics industry and the film franchises. But it really is just a, it's a corporate rivalry. And you see these same things throughout. You have the, you often have the market leader, and there's advantages and disadvantages to that. And the Sega Nintendo battle was, was not immune to that. It just had sort of a little asterisk that, that made it even more interesting because it was that Wild West era and because these were both Japanese companies fighting in America. So what do you think about the gaming industry at the moment and how it impacts global culture? Because reading your book... From 20 years ago, I'm reading about these Sega and Nintendo wars without the internet, without any kind of social media, and yet it had as important an impact to me all the way out here as it did to you over there. Yeah, I think that the video game industry nowadays has obviously changed a lot since then. The biggest change, and sort of the lasting legacy of fake, in my opinion, is that video games are now no longer just for kids. They are, it's a mainstream form of entertainment. It's, the video game industry is over a $60 billion industry. It's bigger than music and film combined. And so pop culturally, it really is a juggernaut. But, you know, I, I kind of think back to, to 1990, and rem I remember my brother and I wanting to play video games with our father, and he's a great father, so he would, he would play with us. But the way he played with us was almost like the way a parent would attend a, a daughter's tea party where he was being nice, but it was kind of like make-believe, and it was something that was, you know, there's a little patronizing sense to it. That, that was the perception of video games. It was, a, it was a thing for kids, and now it's obviously grown much more into this mainstream pop cultural form of entertainment. You know, the funny thing is, I think that despite the major success of video games, there's still, you know, people still don't know too much about 
what goes on behind the scenes, or not even that really, but just sort of in the way that with music and with Hollywood and with a lot of other forms of media that we all love, we kind of, there's a little bit of a hero worship. There's, there's stars and celebrities behind it, but that's not really the case with video games. The exception of a few game creators like Miyamoto, people don't really know where these games are coming from. You know, it's not from the director of or from the producer of. It's, it's so rarely that case. And I think that's starting to change a little bit right about now. And I think that's part of why th- there were so few books on the subject, which, is, which gave me a nice opportunity to kind of come in and, and start to shine a light on the people behind the scenes that make this all happen. What's the one thing that Sony and Microsoft can take away from Sega and Nintendo? I think that the, it's, it's, the, it's the identity. It's the, you know, the, the strange thing for me now is that if, if my grandma or if my, my younger cousin, somebody who doesn't know that much about video games, asked me, oh, I'm thinking about buying a, a Microsoft Xbox One or a Sony PS4, what's the difference? Or, what, or what's the difference between the two brands? Like, what do they represent? I don't really know that I have an answer. They both, they're both really good and they both play a lot of great games and it's a lot of similar games. But back in the day, you know, if someone said, what's the difference between a Genesis or a Mega Drive and a Super Nintendo? What's the difference between a Dreamcast and a PlayStation and a GameCube? Like, I could give you 50 different answers. Oh, Nintendo makes this kind of content. Sony does these kinds of games. And so it's really hard to differentiate what both of the companies are trying to do. And I think a lot of that speaks to, like I said earlier, the cost of making these games and the barrier to entry. But it's just a little bit hard. So... To, to answer your question about what lessons they could take away is just the importance of of doing of going beyond the game. You know, Sega's campaigns, like Sega does what Nintendo or Genesis does with Nintendo, was a welcome to the next level campaign. Yes, that was a lot of pure marketing, where you know the, the style is more maybe more important than the substance. But but in the end, that style changed what the substance was. You know, I think that's part of the reason that we. We do associate Sonic with that, with capturing the cultural zeitgeist of that era and sort of being edgy and, and having those American values. It's because of the marketing around it. So it's kind of this transformative marketing that, that makes the, the underlying product more, more, more valuable or more impactful than it originally is. And, and I, I think that's something that both Sony and Microsoft can take away. And it's something that especially Nintendo can take away as they continue to uh, meander along. Favorite game of all time on either the Sega or Nintendo? My favorite game of all time is NHL 94 for the Sega Genesis. I'm not necessarily a huge hockey fan in real life. I mean, I enjoy it. But there was just something about that game, the the poetry and the motion. I just absolutely love that game. And then in terms of the more traditional games and the platformer games, I think Mario Brothers 3 is probably my, my second favorite game of all time, or sometimes even my favorite game of all time, depending upon my mood. What about you? I've got two, actually, and I think I go back to these, like you say, your first love. So when I first got a Mega Drive, it was Streets of Rage. Mm-hmm. Great game. Yeah, fantastic game. There was, there was Streets of Rage, and then when I first got a Super Nintendo, it was Star Fox, of course. One of my favorite stories that did not end up in the book was uh, with Streets of Rage. Al Nelson, who was the director of marketing at Sega, for the promotion of Streets of Rage, he wanted to have a kid blow up a building in New York, basically buy a building or buy the rights to a building that was going to be blown up for construction purposes and have a contest for a kid to be able to push a button and be the one to blow it up. 
but there was too much uh, insurance concerns and all this other red tape around that. But I just always love that idea of Al wanting to blow up the building and, and giving us kids the right to do this thing that <laughs> probably would have been really, really cool for a really, really silly reason, but it would have meant a lot to us at the time. That's absolutely brilliant. And my last question, <laughs> was there one thing like one console, accessory, something that you've always wanted as a kid and you never got? That's a really great question. And I think, I, I especially think it's a good question because my answer, the, the Nintendo Power Glove, is kind yes, of... Yes, the Power Glove. It kind of feeds into a lot of what we're talking about with just the perception of marketing and, and the allure and aura around it. And and in the end, I mean, the Power Glove was, was a lousy product. It wasn't good. I think that that's my first answer is probably... A lot of people's first answers, it sounds like it's the top of your list. And, and it's just a thing that the reason we think it's so cool because of its name, because of the visuals and the aesthetics of, of you know, raising your arm and, and using this power glove. It was also featured in that movie, The Wizard. And, and in the end, the gameplay is it's terrible with the gameplay, but it just has this panache to it um, that shows how valuable marketing can be. And in that case, that's kind of a, it would be a case of false advertising to some extent. But if you actually combine all that that excitement and the aura around it and you have it be a good product, then it's something that really elevates that product to another level. And that's something that you see in a lot of what Sega Nintendo did. But that one uh, is just kind of like the, uh, the white whale that nobody really got. And we all thought it was because it was so elusive, but it was really more so because it stunk. I swear it was almost mythical. <laughs> it was. It really was. Because I remember going into stores and just... Every time I'd go in to buy a game or just walk by a store and I'd just be like, do you have the power glove? <laughs> it really felt that way. And we were both so lucky that we never got it because we would have been so disappointed. Yeah. Uh, what, what comes close for me is, um, yet again, something I've never actually touched in real life, but I hear it's god-awful, the Virtual Boy. It is, but isn't it kind of interesting that you know now with VR being a big thing, it's kind of... It's coming back. There was it was what the twenty twentieth anniversary of the Virtual Boy last week or so, and there was a great article in Fast Company by Ben G. Edwards, which I recommend people to read. But yeah, that was another thing. That one was a little bit less mythical though, because I think that you know it shows you how quickly this evolution all happened. The the Power Glove was something around nineteen eighty nine, nineteen ninety, and Virtual Boy was more of a nineteen ninety four, nineteen ninety five thing. And it's only a five-year difference, but I do think that in that five-year time, there was a little bit more savvy about what was going on. You know, there was more magazines covering it. The internet still wasn't around, but there was still there was a little bit more on the ether that gave us a heads up that maybe this product wasn't as as exciting as it as it appeared to be. No, you're absolutely right. With with, with the power glove, all we got was that kid, which <laughs> looked like he had electricity coming out of his hand. And if yep. you grew up watching Misfits of Science, that's all you wanted to be. <laughs> that was author Blake Harris. You can find his book, Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle that Defined a Generation at All Good Bookstores. It's a must-read for any and all geek kids from the 80s and 90s. You've been listening to Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.